This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Ruman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. It is a pleasure to welcome Kayla Maiori to the show. Kayla's debut novel, Mother in the Dark, is an exquisitely written examination of a daughter's reckoning with her mother's love. Mother in the Dark tells the story of Anna, daughter in a family of sisters that grow up in a working-class town just outside of Boston. The novel rocks back and forth in time, situating us in Anna's childhood in a house and community that helps to nurture her family, and moving forward in time to the present, where Anna lives with her friend Vera in New York City. In Massachusetts, Anna's family looms large in everything about her life. Her mother is otherworldly in her all-consuming love and affection, but such affections ebb as quickly as they come, slipping away into a cold distance of feeling, with her mother burrowing into the deep recesses of the house, away from daughters and her husband. When Anna's father decides to act unilaterally in buying a newly built home in another town, vaulting the family into middle class, her mother is stricken. A gradual uncoiling of anxiety and depression changes Anna's mother and her relationship to her family. With Vera, Anna finds an adulthood in the city that is protected by a new kind of family. But when that family of choice threatens to unravel when news of her mother creeps back into her life, Anna must come to terms with her past, her deep well of connection to a family that molded her, and a present that may or may not cleave them from her life. Composed of sentences that are rapturous with language, even as they cut deep to the bone, Mother in the Dark is an unforgettable debut. Welcome, Kayla. 
That was such a beautiful description of the novel. Thank you. Well, it is. I, I'll have to tell you that when I received the book in the mail, I it was early on and I hadn't heard of it. And I read maybe a page and I thought, who is writing these sentences? I wasn't, you know, blowing smoke when I said they are rapturous with language. And I just um, was really overcome by your style, first and foremost. And I do love, as an English professor, I love a book that gets me with style first. And in fact, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your style. Is it something you're conscious of as you're shaping sentences and thinking about, you know, how that style will match the content? Or is it more natural to you? It's a funny thing, because the style came much later, because the the first draft of the novel was in Anna's childhood voice. Um, oh, wow. I written in the first person from the point of view of this 12 year old girl. And it just, the, the voice evolved as I grew and evolved. I will say when it comes to style, what's most important to me with writing, I began this novel um, in a notebook, just writing images of the girls sitting at the kitchen table and talking and laughing and fighting with each other or sitting on the front porch. And it really was just um, a series of inconsequential scenes where nothing was really happening. And I, I, metaphors and descriptions of like the house making creaks and cracks and the lights glowing in the windows. So I don't know. I mean, that's it, image is definitely what's always been most important to me when writing and then language. I also am very drawn to language forward novels when reading. This makes sense to me now that you say that the Genesis was Im an image of Anna and her sisters, because there is this sense at the beginning that they're this kind of like roiling mess of girls in this house. And they're just sort of having this this natural sisterly experience. And they, you know, they go and they sort of burrow into their mom and, and sort of enjoy her her love and affection. It's easy to see now that you tell me that, that that was sort of the core thing. But I, I find it amazing that it started as 12-year-old um, Anna's voice, because it is such a, it's such a rich adult voice. It's funny, because even with the girls, I always imagined them as this sort of tangled unit. And there was a second when I was like, do I write this entire novel in the we voice? But oh, I'm glad I didn't do that, but it definitely crossed my mind at one point because I just love them as this sisterly force. Well, I could see you doing something like the Virgin Suicides We or um, mm -hmm. maybe We Are Animals or one of those wonderful sort of like kids as as we voice. But I'm, I'm glad I have Anna's voice. We the Animals is definitely a huge inspiration for this novel also. I love that novel. Oh, it is. Oh, that's a, that's been recommended by, I can't tell you how many guests on this show. And it's, I think it is a miraculous work. It's extraordinary. For me, one of the biggest questions that you pose with this novel concerns the complications of maternalism and how they are dramatized in Anna's mother's dramatic transformation in mental health and in the perception her children have of her as a capable mother. Literary depictions of complicated mothers are everywhere and forever, and as is so often the case, the judgment of those mothers can be fierce. You clearly wanted to both interrogate the expectations placed on 
a mother while also seeking to complicate the narr the narrative of their fragility and failure. Could you describe a little bit of your thoughts of Anna's mother and how you kind of encountered the the complicated history of maternalism? Yeah, I want to say that I was a bit surprised when descriptions of this novel started coming up on the internet and the word mental illness kept popping up because I'm not ignorant of the fact that Diana is suffering from depression or unhealed traumas from her childhood, but to me this really is about the insane expectations that society puts mm. on mothers um, and in turn that daughters put on their mothers. Um, and I just believe that mothers and daughters are truly set up to be in conflict with one another. I will say to me, this is a novel about daughterhood and like the failings of a daughter and how Anna can just be so graceless and and judging and like her repulsion of her mother is something that I want people to identify with, but also to, you know, feel sorry for Diana and, and empathize with Diana. What I was really trying to interrogate or how mothers are sacrificing and, and self-neglecting in a way that I don't think fathers are. Um, mm. And they're meant to be, and of course this is a generalization, but um, you know, they're meant to be um, our caretakers and our best friends and, and our mind readers and our protectors. And there's just so much invisible work that goes into mothering. Um, and I'm also interested in the ways that daughters blame their mothers and forgive their fathers. In this story alone, the father like objectively makes terrible decisions that put his family in harm's way. And still the girls are like, mm, yeah, that's mom's fault. And it's something that was very real to me when I was a kid. And, I, and I've seen it, um, my, my friends go through the same thing. It's just so easy to, if, if you're growing up in like that traditional gender role, um, family, like it's it's the father's contribution contributions to the family are so much more tangible, and the mother does a lot of secret work and and so much more work mm -hmm. um, that goes unappreciated. Yeah, and I, I I realize as as you sort of talk through the the how how kind of problematic it is that I immediately attached a mental illness to to what is a kind of shrinking under that load, that cultural expectation load that um, is is on Anna's mother and how that we call it some sort of failing, whether it's mental or, you know, some other kind of substantive failing. But you, you were pointing out exactly how that both the, the expectations culturally, but also there is that sort of mother daughter, at least as it is kind of gendered traditionally relationship in where it has to be every Thing to everyone, and if it's not, then it's a then it's a failure. Yeah, and and also you're not wrong to bring up the mental illness. Like a, a big part of the novel is about um, inheriting somebody else's grief or learning somebody else's grief, and that's something I intentionally wanted to weave in there as we see um, Anna in New York repeating all of Diana's behaviors. But it was really like surprising to me just how many people have like claimed this to be a novel about mental illness mm. when to me it's really just about, you know, family dynamics at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. Early scenes in the novel so beautifully explore the friendship that Anna has with her roommate Vera. 
they love and comfort each other in deeply intimate ways. But as Vera bounces into and out of serious relationships with men, that intimacy is tested. It feels at times that Vera is a stand-in for Anna's lost intimacy with her family or perhaps her her expectations for her family um, having been failed in her mind and then seeking it elsewhere. What did you want to explore with their friendship? With Vera, I definitely wanted to convey that she is a surrogate mother to Anna. Um, there are scenes where she crawls into her bed and cradles her to sleep and coddles and comforts her and placates her. Um, there's a moment where Anna is watching Vera clean dishes at their apartment sink and she sort of like superimposes an image of her mother onto Vera. Mm. Uh, and ultimately, Anna really has no sense of boundaries. Like with, with siblings and sisters especially, you can really get away with mistreating one another to a certain extent. There's this threshold of emotional pain we're willing to take from our siblings that we wouldn't ever accept from a friend. And in these New York scenes, I think Anna is taking advantage of Vera or, or treating her as if she's owed this unconditional love. Um, and she thinks Vera will never leave her. And... I also, with this friendship, wanted to illustrate all that Anna was like not taught by her mother and that lack of boundary and emotional promiscuity. She's sort of emotionally stunted and you can see a bit of mirroring in how Anna's friendship with Vera is playing out compared to how Diana's friendship with Debbie plays out. Um, mm -hmm. And there are limits to friendship, but this is a special case in which Vera is like, really patient and gracious and has learned how to be a better friend with age. Um, maybe from her own mother. I don't really go into that on the page, but in my mind, she's learned it from her mother. It's it, it's interesting as you describe Anna as, you know, taking advantage and having been in, in, in many ways the person who uh, rejected her family rather than vice versa. I keep thinking, wait, but I love Anna. And I think she's like <laughs> amazingly... Um, <laughs> Uh, good at pulling us in uh, to her to her voice, her way of thinking. What was it like to kind of balance? I mean, obviously, I you know ended the novel thinking, oh, she's she's quite a flawed person, but she she definitely we're in her camp for the the novel. So, how did you want to balance that? That makes me so happy to hear because I really feel for Anna and I'm always so worried that she is just too unlikable. Like I just pushed it too far. Oh, no, I, th I think she's incredibly likable. I that makes me so happy. I, you know, um, I had this professor at Columbia, Lisa Chappelle, and and she said that she was only interested in reading writers who um, left a part of themselves on the page, or the best phrase that she had was um, left their bloody fingerprints on the page. And that meant mm. that you had to just like, just expose all. And Anna is not me. This is a hundred percent a fictional novel, but I, you know, in, in writing about my loosely on my childhood, I knew that I couldn't just paint Anna as a victim and I had to have her be flawed and shine her in these really unflattering lights. Also so that people recognize themselves in her, which isn't always like you don't need that in fiction, but I like that in fiction. Mm -hmm. um, but it was a difficult balance. I mean, she does some like really nasty things, <laughs> especially in the New York scenes that I was just like, oh, I don't want to do this. But I felt like I've achieved something if people still like her by the end. 
Well, I would I recognize myself in kind of her passive aggressiveness with with mm -hmm. Vera, uh, and how like when we have very strong feelings, sometimes that's our like you know course of of last resort is is just being passive aggressive. So I I, I both felt for her and I was like, oh yes, I I know that move. Yeah, she's so self sabotaging and so passive. Yeah, and it's uh, it it just makes for what I think is a it's a much more realistic human being. She's not she is right. not um, above being very self centered and and self sabotaging, as you say. Right. The novel lives in two cities that generally can't stand each other: um, Boston and New York City. Although to be precise, precise, it's Everett, Massachusetts. You're describing Everett doesn't get a lot of play in literature. How did you come to set the novel in Everett, and how does its place matter, especially when we feel its contrast with New York City? So my family is from Everett, and I was born in a city just outside called Malden. So that's where the inspiration came from. But I really wanted to depict that brashness that Bostonians have come to be known for, that no-nonsense, rough-around-the-edges, like, gracelessness. Um, I, I didn't put Boston accent in the novel. I stopped there. <laughs> but also, at least in the North Shore, where, where I'm from, there's such a large community of first and second generation Italians. And I swear Italian Americans hold more pride for Italy than actual Italians. I, um, I think that's absolutely <laughs> true. <laughs> yes. Um, it's such an important part of my family dynamic and my family history and that of Everett Mass. So I really wanted to make sure that came through. Um, so as far as like the contrast between New York City and Boston, Anna's childhood is really busied and peopled, but deeply connected to all that's around her. She can hardly have a moment to herself. She can hear her neighbors talking in the next house over, even when the windows are closed. Um, and when the windows are open, she can reach her bedroom window and touch the neighbor's house. And in New York, of course, she's still surrounded by people, but it's just she's she's suffocating with loneliness which is sort of the beauty and curse of new york it's totally normal and acceptable to be alone here but also it could be really difficult or or can take years to build a sense of community um and anna only has vera here and this trail of random men <laughs> that mean nothing to her <laughs> yeah your description of being able to reach out and of the window and touch the house next door is is such a vivid one and that sense of awareness that yes your your initial immediate family is is so important but that you're part of this other interwoven and interwebbed community whether you want to or not uh, and that that's important even the kind of involuntariness of it Right. And it's especially important to Diana. I mean, she lives for that community, which obviously <laughs> we learn quickly leads to her downfall when she leaves. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. 
Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, it's it's such a, what seems at first like important and, and perhaps good move for the family. You see more and more is a, really a torture for her as she's feels herself yanked from those um, roots that she has in that close-knit community. Right. Uh, this is an architectural novel, both in its careful and thoughtful narrative structuring, and also in its attention to physical structures and how they hold the memories and feelings of families and eras. The house in Everett, where Anna's family lives before moving to a slightly fancier bit of new construction, is small in size but contains deep reservoirs of memory and feeling. What does that house and architecture more broadly mean to your novel? This is so funny that architecture made its way. I mean, there are so many descriptions of wood and, and plaster and sand swirled ceilings. And I, mm -hmm. it, it must be from my dad, who he's an electrical engineer, but um, he always had the blueprints on the table. And he taught me how to you know highlight the fire alarms in red, which I'm pretty sure is the same <laughs> Um, so, and, and he also has a hobby of, of building houses. And so I just was always around it. Like and th there's, you know, I'm, I'm writing about the smell of sawdust and yeah, it was, it was such an important part of the book. The scenes in the old house were so fun to write. I mean, and we discussed, you know, conveying the beauty and, and sense of community in, in a neighborhood like Everett, but I also wanted to subvert our idea of upward mobility and construction and, and building a bigger and beautiful house. And like you said, like on the page, moving to the suburbs seems like a wonderful thing and it can be, I think, for children. But for Diana, a woman who's lived in this tight-knit community all of her life, to be uprooted to a place where she doesn't fit in, where she can't drive, I mean, she like is truly trapped in her neighborhood being afraid to drive. It doesn't matter that they're essentially moving up in life. Um, it's not where she's meant to be. And I think that suburbia can just be a terrifying, isolating place. And I was really interested in the idea of this grand, cold, empty house, which, which is the second house, um, that could somehow become claustrophobic despite its vastness. Um, and how this sense of suffocation doesn't necessarily come from size, but, but from the atmosphere and and the moods of the family members inside of the house. I, I wanted it to feel like the walls were pressing in on them um, inside this you know grand house on the hill. I think I answered your question. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And that's really nicely described. And I did think it, you did a remarkable job of making that big new house feel claustrophobic. And at one point, I think you, you describe it as devouring them, almost like it's a, it's a monster with many mouths. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wanted it to, to feel like it was coming alive in moments without, you know, making it goofy. <laughs> well, it certainly isn't goofy. And I'm, and I'm struck by the fact that you know, Diana's deep loneliness in, in bullying, being pulled out of her community is, is for the most part, in, until later on, 
unseen by Anna. She she doesn't understand the commonality she shares in her own loneliness in New York um, with with her mother and wants to hold it at a distance as something else, something other. And I find that fascinating that there's so much about Anna's life in New York City that would help her be empathetic to her mother and yet mm. for the most part fails. Yeah, I think she is, is is just so repulsed and rejecting the fact that she is an extension of her mother. She's rejecting any similarity between them. But you're right that you one would think it would make her more empathetic. But we're also so egotistical in our early twenties. And but and and still, you know, she's she's running away from her family, but it's very clear that that all she yearns for in life is a mother and a family. And they've not left her in any way. They're still at top of mind the entire time that she's in New York. So she just needs to do some self-reflecting. <laughs> yeah, they are. I mean, she kind of, I, I think, positions them as a albatross around her neck that she can't wait to throw off. And yet what they actually are, are this sort of like weight that keeps her, you know, rooted to the ground and from floating off into this kind of loneliness and, and desperation, but she can't see it for so long. Mm -hmm. And it's this, I mean, I, I recognize that even in, in myself and, you know, I, I, love my family and and have a pretty unproblematic relationship to them but the, those years in of your 20s you really feel like ah now it's time to kind of like shuffle off that you know those connections and now i'm going to make myself something new and independent and and the idea that we would then give up all that was sort of like structured and and built into us like we're houses ourselves i i think that's so sad and and you you really get to that with with anna yeah especially with the sisters i mean they they really feel like she abandoned them and i think she feels like she abandoned them as well yeah the and the uh, there's a great conversation near the end where i forget i'm sorry which sister that she's talking to yeah. but um she the sister says you know what i i it's not it's not a failure to have for me to have stayed and i'm actually going to graduate school but i didn't even think you'd you'd want to know and i thought that was a remarkable scene that kind of uh i think belied this idea that oh yes to like overcome some you know quote unquote damage you've had from your class upbringing you have to flee right right so there is sexual violence lurking in the relationships and brief encounters that Anna and her um, women friends have had. And I would say from Pamela and Clarissa at the early edges of the novel until the present, the novel as a genre has sought to narrate the horrible gauntlet of sexual violence that women must endure on the path to adulthood. There's almost an assumption that that violence is, is going to be commonplace in the way that a woman experiences the world. How were you able to sort of manage having that come into the novel in ways subtle and ways more direct, while also thinking about its complicated literary history? I, I always knew I wanted to explore restrictive gender roles. And there's quite a bit of sexual violence. And but even more, I, I believe there's a, there are silent, less detectable violences, like 
Anna's father infantilizing and chastising her mother in front of the family or leaving her out of important life decisions. Um, you know, when he like brings them all into the living room and sits them on the couch and he announces this big move and she's hearing it for the first time alongside her daughters. And then of course, Anna has no clue how to navigate the world once she's left home. She doesn't know how to say no to men, um, which is something she's perhaps um, witnessed between her mother and father. Um, and she thinks she needs a man in order for her existence to matter. And all of these scenarios are, you know, things that myself or my friends or loved ones have lived through. And it's just a disgusting reality. And I, I didn't know how to write about sex with men and, and, and with sex with men um, for a woman in her 20s without it being dangerous and orchestrated by these power dynamics, which, you know, the men hold the power, but also Anna, like her mother, has learned to occupy like this submissive role and to perpetuate it. And they reject autonomy and, and they accept passivity. And with Dee, she's really grown comfortable in, in her dynamic with her husband or the, the dynamic that her husband has fostered. And she's taught Anna by example. Um, and like you said, it starts... Um, very young for these girls with that sinister scene at Dunkin Donuts, like when the older mm. male construction workers are just being really suggestive and disgusting to these underage girls. And Leah's like, better get used to it. Like, this is what men do. So it's just something that we're taught from childhood. Yeah, it's the it's the commonplaceness of it, that it has to be instructed, that this will be absolutely part of your existence that becomes more and more of a, a a horror story and and the more that it's in encountered in in novels the more it feels like that there's there's something that needs to burst or give or or change mm -hmm. and i'm you know my hopeful part of me thinks that maybe literature uh, approaching it in in its most difficult and most fraught terms might help um, women to see it as not natural and not the way of things. But I don't know, do you, do you give literature that much credit that it might be able to do things just by narrating them in the truest possible lens? Right, or that fiction can change us some ways or, or teach us about, about the world. I, I think so. I, I hope so. Yeah, no, I'm. I mean, I'm. I'm sort of stuck too. And then, if the answer is is yes, great. I guess we'll just have to wait around until it works, works some <laughs> magic. And if it's no, it's sort of like, oh, that's ter that's terrible news. Um, so, but I do. I mean, what I appreciate in in your novel is that you have a kind of unblinking eye to the fact that this is really part of her life and that she did inherit things from relationships that she saw before and from gender dynamics that she saw before and that perhaps there is a way to to change that dynamic and and yeah. that we hope that um for her and for others yeah um, so I'm before I let you go, I'm dying to know what you've been loving to read recently, what calls to you from your bedside table that you just can't wait to get back to. So I will start with this disclaimer, <laughs> which is that I've had a bit of a difficult time reading 
um, honestly, since I submitted my final task of the manuscript. And I've heard this from a lot of writers that the publishing process is just so intense that once you're done, you just like can't settle. But I've started and finished one novel since my book came out. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> and But I've been recommending it to everybody. And I, I read it in a couple of sittings on the beach with my sisters and I couldn't put it down and they were yelling at me because I wasn't paying attention to them, um, it, uh, which is a good sign. Um, and it was Anna Hoagland's The Long Answer. Um, and it's a beautiful novel about female friendship and sisterhood, but most importantly and, and most obviously, I think, about the beauty and power of storytelling and how sharing our stories and hearing the stories of others really just sustains us and fuels us. It's a really slow burn. It plays a lot with structure and it's just incredible. It's so funny um, that that you that this is the novel you finished she's going to be coming on the show in a oh in, in a month or so so i can i actually haven't read the novel yet but i'm very excited to read it it looks wonderful and now that you've recommended it i know that i will will love it and so i'll i'll preview it for listeners and then we'll get to get to talk to her on the show so thank you for that oh i'm so excited anna is lovely you're gonna love talking to her Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you, Kayla, for, for coming and, and talking about this incredible novel. Mother in the Dark is just such a wonderful debut, and I can't wait for people to run out and grab it and, and enjoy it as much as I did. And it was a real pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much, Chris. I appreciate it. Well, that's all from me for now. My great thanks to Kayla Maiori, whose powerful novel, Mother in the Dark, is available now with Riverhead Books. You can find a link to purchase that novel and Kayla's recommendation, Anna Hoagland's The Long Answer, at the website burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes and links to purchase all the recommended books. Later this week, look out for my interview with Lynn Steger-Strong. Until then, this has been Burned by Books. <laughs> <laughs>